0: Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. Now, in my last podcast, I began talking about the tragedy of silent churches. And my whole discussion here is oriented to to my concern that many churches, particularly Protestant churches and particularly evangelical kind of conservative churches, have essentially silenced themselves on cultural issues uh, in a way that is counterproductive to the society, does its members a disservice, and quite frankly, is counter to the calling of Scripture. Uh, Christians ought to be, to some extent, activists. We are called upon to address poverty. We're called upon to speak out uh, when there's oppression. Uh, We're called upon to speak out uh, for those who cannot speak out for themselves. Um, And by the way, we're also called, some of us, not all of us, obviously, but we are also called to run for office and to be in positions of leadership. In fact, Scripture speaks of people who are uh, in the political uh, realms of political leadership uh, to be as called as uh, someone who's in the pulpit. Uh, again, it only takes a quick reading of Romans 13 to see that that's true. So uh, in my last podcast, I said that this this trend towards churches not being activists, towards them not speaking out uh, according to a biblical mandate, to them being silent on social issues, um, was a result of two things. I said I'd talk about the third one this time. The two I talked about last week um, was first of all the trend of Pietism in the church since the Reformation, and you can listen to last last uh, the last podcast to understand what I mean. Uh, a reaction to the political involvement of the Reformed churches and a, a movement towards kind of the left wing of the Reformation, where they focused on the the matters of Christianity at a personal and congregational level, but but not at a at a national or a political or an economic level, and of course both are the calling of the church, but people reacted just after the Reformation, and that trend has continued to this day. And the second one was just plain ignorance. Most pastors have uh, more on their plates than they can say grace over. They might be very uh, well-educated, well-read, people who are highly degreed, but that doesn't mean that they have the time or the wherewithal to understand the issues that are going on in our society. So both of those are important, and I made recommendations about both of those last week or last time. In this podcast, I want to tell you a story that most Americans don't know about how it became part of the IRS tax code that churches could not speak out on political matters. Now, understand that prior to this thing happening, and by the way, it didn't happen until the 1950s, can you believe it? Uh, Prior to this thing happening, churches spoke out quite openly on political issues. In fact, it was seen as what they were there to do. They were meant to speak uh, to political matters. It was assumed that churches and religious organizations were the guardians of eternal truth. Uh, the society wanted eternal truth spoken it into its politics, spoken it into its uh, public life, and so they wanted uh, pastors to speak to these matters. They wanted uh, churches. Uh, not to be you know political centers necessarily, and as though that in some way that was imbalanced, but certainly to as the as the churches spoke a biblical worldview, they would speak also to the realm of politics just as surely as they would speak to the realms of sexual ethics or education or or whatever this was what they were called to do. Well, all of this changed in the 1950s, and it involves the story of a man we all know by the name of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Yes, the man who became President Johnson, former Vice President to John F. Kennedy, and then President of the United States after John F. Kennedy. Um, and in ni- in the 19 19- in 1954, actually, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson um, was in a pretty heated contest um, for Senate, and um, he was being opposed by a lot of wealthy Texas oil men who were more conservative than he was. This was the era of McCarthyism. There was a lot of concern about communism. And a lot of wealthy Texas oil men were, you know, forming nonprofit organizations uh, to influence politics in a, you know, anti communist, anti socialist direction. Now, LBJ was not the most ethical of politicians. I mean, I, I think that whatever good thing. Things came out of his presidency and came out of his years as vice president and senator. Um, the fact of the matter is that he was he was, you know, not beyond playing the political game. Um, for, for example, uh, he won one election in Duval County in Texas. Um, by by his campaign producing at the very last minute a mysterious box number thirteen that had two hundred votes in it and no one knew how that box had become lost and how it was that suddenly it was found and found just in time to elect Johnson. Um, he he had a he had a very strange reputation when it came to voting uh, that earned him the nickname landslide Lyndon. Uh, in fact, William Buckley, the founder and editor of the National Review. Once said that his grandfather had possessed such a strong sense of civic obligation that though he died in 1904, he rose again to vote for Lyndon Johnson in 1948. Uh, Critics said that the elder Buckley was not the only dead man to vote for Johnson that year. You get the point. Johnson was digging up the records of of dead people and uh, registering them as voters, and then having you know, in other words, he was somewhat corrupt. But that's how often how it was done in Texas. I'm not saying that to uh, excuse it, but rural Texas uh, elections were often corrupt in this way. But by the time that we're talking about now, 1954, uh, Johnson was a U.S. senator. Um, he was being opposed by wealthy Texas oil men who were at least, you know, set in motion by uh, Joseph McCarthy's uh, anti-communism. and uh, And they were hunting for uh, Lyndon Johnson. A lot of senators, a lot of congressmen were concerned about these nonprofit organizations that could exert influence in um, in, in American politics. Well, there was a House Special Committee meeting at the time. Uh, it was called the House Special Committee to Investigate Tax-Exempt Foundations. And that committee had been formed and given a mandate be- precisely because these congressmen and senators um, were concerned about the influence of these, you know, nonprofit organizations, these tax-exempt foundations, the the way that they could, you know, gain momentum against a certain sitting senator or congressman or champion certain causes. And obviously, the, these congressmen and senators didn't want these organizations to have such power. So... Um, that what was under review were the requirements for a 501c3 organization. And if you're not familiar with 501c3 organizations, that's largely what churches are. It's largely what nonprofit ministries are, um, religious organizations that have exemption from the IRS. Your your church does not pay tax. Um, even your clergyman gets um, uh, tax exemptions of certain types. And this all comes under the IRS Code 501c3. Well. On on a, on a, on July second, nineteen fifty four, uh, Lyndon Johnson rose on the floor of the Senate, and he proposed some revisions to the. Uh, to the law IRS code that pertains to 501c3 organizations and what he proposed was that the phrase influence legislation would be removed from this code and instead it would read influence legislation and which does not participate in or intervene in any political campaign on behalf of behalf of any candidate for public office so from that day on by the way this was accepted uh, into the code without debate without discussion, without public awareness. It happened in an instant. It happened on one day, July 2nd, 1954, and it was uh, purely a matter of backroom manipulations. Um, And what it did from that day forward, it meant that anyone who received an IRS exemption for a religious organization, church or ministry, could not endorse a candidate, and in most cases could not even speak out about political matters. And um, that was never the intention of the First Amendment. It was never the intention of the founding fathers. Our founding generation actually involved uh, clergymen in political matters intentionally, established chaplains. You know, there were even at the state level religious tests for candidates and so on to make sure. Um, that, that the people had the right kind of faith for that locality. Now, of course, we don't want those today. I understand that. But what I'm saying is that at the time, the founding fathers definitely wanted the involvement of the churches and the clergy. But on one day, July 2nd, 1954, Lyndon Baines Johnson pretty much secretly entered into the IRS code a restriction on religious organizations speaking out about politics. And there have been since that time, churches that have lost their tax-exempt organizations, uh, tax-exempt status, um, for example, one famous one was in 1992. Uh, Pierce Creek Church in upstate New York uh, took out an advertisement in USA Today and the Washington Times, warning about Bill Clinton's support for abortion on demand, um, and asked the question, "How can we vote for Bill Clinton?" And they lost their tax-exempt organization, uh, tax-exempt status. Sorry. Um, And, you know, when that happens, what that means is that when the people in the congregation give money, it's no longer tax-exempt. It means the church, the organization, should start paying taxes from that point on. I mean, it can pretty much decimate a church um, which uh, runs on the assumption of tax exemption and the people receiving tax-exempt status for their their contributions. So these three things, the modification of the IRS code, which then has the IRS sort of intimidating churches and keeping them silent on political matters, ignorance of pastors and clergymen, and the the heritage of pietism in the history of the church particu- that particularly took root in American soil, these things have caused us to be silent on political matters. Now, My point is not to get churches to become nothing but political. That would be destructive and damaging. And it certainly isn't my point to get churches to become so partisan that they are either churches that are conservative or churches are liberal. I think we all ought to be worshiping together in churches where we have political mixture. Um, However, there is a biblical mandate for our approach to this world, its affairs, the injustices in this society, its leaders the um, cause of the oppressed, etc., that we are must respond to just as surely as we respond to a calling to educate our children um, and to walk in righteousness and to give and to submit to leaders and all the other things that are about the congregational and personal level, family level of religion. And so I have addressed these two podcasts specifically uh, to churches, which I rarely do. Uh, I usually speak very, very broadly Um, Because I believe that while religion may be a little less influential than it has been at the national and public level uh, in recent decades, that still the churches are a mighty force in our society, Uh, still the churches can have a huge impact, not just at the local but at the national level, and what we need is a greater courage in our clergy, uh, a greater uh, courage in the congregation to understand that we have a calling uh, upon us from our God uh, to speak out about these things, to make a difference, to address poverty, to address injustice, to uh, model a difference, when it, whether we're talking about race or sexual ethics or marriage or our children, um, and to address wrongs in our government that range from immoral foreign policies to violations of of, uh, of privacy to uh, abortion and what have you, um, for example, I'll be a little risky here and tell you that this past week I've spoken out very loudly um, against the fact that our government has actually appointed a, an emissary uh, to deal with LGBT um uh, to, to represent LGBT issues, but cannot seem to get itself together to support the Kurds against ISIS. Now, I'll say for another podcast my views on LGBT matters, but I will tell you the fact that our government, our federal government, was able to find time to do that and can't seem to get food and weapons to the primary people standing on the ground against ISIS is a travesty, and I'll say it's an immoral travesty. So, uh those of you who are clergy those of you who are in church leadership elders deacons what have you um ponder these things discuss these things and come to some conclusions about what you can do um but understand and at the congregation level congregational level uh we need to have people who are a stir. We need to have people who are saying, let's pray about these things in our, in our services. Let's be active. Let's address these matters. I want to see young Christians on the streets when there's a righteous cause to be demonstrated for. I'm not asking you to go out and get killed, but I am asking that you are counted and that your voice is heard. We can help turn this country in a righteous, just, and fair direction and we ought to be doing it on a wide variety of issues. It's time for the tragedy of silent churches to end in American society. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, and a frequent faith and culture commentator on CNN, Fox, and the Huffington Post. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and The Miracle of the Kurds. You can learn more about Stephen at stephenmansfield.tv and greatman.us and connect with him on Facebook and on Twitter under the name Mansfield Writes. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is produced by Isaac Darnall, who also wrote, performed, and produced the Rockin' Podcast theme song. Be sure to rate the Stephen Mansfield Podcast in the iTunes Store. This is a Chartwell Literary Group production.